Let's pray. Heavenly Father, inspire us by your spirit to understand your word so that we can be better followers of Jesus. Amen. Well, Christians love committees and meetings. When I worked for CMS, we used to call it the Constant Meeting Society. But now I work for MTC, well, maybe we should call it more trying committees? I'm not sure. We love planning committees, but sometimes I think Jesus can't wait for the church to get on with the job, and so he just does it. At the end of the first talk, we saw the gospel breaking the barrier and getting out of Jerusalem, going from the known to the unknown. And this happened through quite an unexpected set of associated uh, events with the persecution of the Jerusalem Christians in the wake of Stephen's death. No planning committee had thought of this. It seems that Jesus had just decided it was time. It was time for the gospel to leave Jerusalem and go to the nations. And it seems that Jesus then instituted a multi-pronged strategy to get the, the, the gospel out to the nations. The first in his uh, three strategies was the scattering. And we saw at the end of the last talk how in uh, chapter, chapter 8, verse 4, the, uh, the persecution happened and thousands of evangelists left Jerusalem. The gospel is heading out. The second strategy was the recruitment exercise to employ an apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul, or Saul, is converted. By the time we get to the end of chapter 9, it seems that the program uh, that was set out in chapter 1, verse 8, remember, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, it seems that it's well on the way. Because in chapter 9, verse 31, Luke records, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. But there's one thing left that Jesus needs to organise if the gospel is going to go to the nations. He, he realised that the church needed a crash course in what was going to be a flood of Gentile converts? And so we have chapter 10 of the book of Acts and the story of Peter and Cornelius. We can't overemphasize how important this particular chapter is in the book and how important this particular issue is in the future of the Gentile mission. How will Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians fellowship together? And that's what we're looking at today in Acts 10. How Jesus prepares the body of Christ to receive new Gentile members. So 
So let's look at chapter 10. Chapter 10 is like a play with three scenes. Scene number one, Cornelius at home in Caesarea, verses 1 to 7. Scene two, the Apostle Peter is at Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa, verses 8 to 23a. And scene number three, Peter visits Cornelius at Caesarea, verse 23b to verse 48. Okay, so let's look at these scenes. Scene one, meet Cornelius. Well, Cornelius is a Roman army officer. And it says here in, uh, in these verses that he and his whole family are devout God-fearers. He has a visit from an angel in a vision. Note, he doesn't ask or invite this vision. And the angel says, Send to Joppa, which, by the way, is about 62 kilometres away on the coast, and fetch Simon, who is staying at the other Simon's house. Well, at this point, we're starting to get a little bit excited. We think, wow, it looks like Cornelius is about to be evangelised. But there is one snag. The church at this point is made entirely of Jews. And the Jewish believers have a theological problem about evangelising non-Jews. Now, this theological problem wasn't fundamentally a problem with their theology of salvation. Clearly, the apostles understood that non-Jews can be saved. For a start, the Old Testament clearly states that God wants all nations to worship him. There's Thousands, of, maybe not thousands, there's plenty of passages in the Old Testament. For instance, Isaiah 49, 6. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Secondly, Jesus had commanded clearly that his disciples evangelize the nations after his resurrection in Matthew 28. And then in our passage in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells them clearly that they will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do just this work. So it's not a problem with their theology of salvation. The problem, however, is in their understanding of the theology of church or fellowship between believers. Now, the Jewish law never specifically says that Jews can't fellowship with Gentiles. However, the Jewish law does say that unclean people can't be part of the fellowship of God's people. And Gentiles habitually eat unclean food, making them unclean. So the Jews held that they could not fellowship with non-Jews in any close way and definitely can't eat with them. They are unclean. So the question for the Jewish Christians is this. How are these unclean Gentiles, even if saved by God, how are they going to be received into the new people of God? They're unclean. And that's where God's cross-cultural training plan is so clever. 
Meet the actors in this event. Cornelius is the ideal first Jewish, first Gentile convert. He's a great test case. He's, for a start, a resident in Israel. He's a God-fearer. And he's morally upright. So apart from the fact that he's a Gentile, the Jews don't have a big problem with this man. Meet Peter. He's an influential leader who, once persuaded of God's plan with regard to the Gentiles, he's going to be at decision-making meetings, such as the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. So we have two ideal participants in this cross-cultural training. However, before Peter meets Cornelius, he will need this major lesson. Think of it as St Andrew's Hall, the CMS Training College in Melbourne. And we move on to scene two. It seems to be a season for uninvited visions. Now Cornelius has just had a vision, and now Peter gets one as well. And we all know the story. He sees a bunch of animals lowered down in a large linen cloth. All are unclean according to the law. And he's told to kill and eat. It's absolutely outrageous. Imagine a, a totally moral, upright, law-abiding Jew hearing God tell him to seemingly break the law. And what's more, he's told three times to make sure there is no mistake. The meaning of the vision is summed up in verse 15. Do not call anything impure that God has called clean. Scene 3 from verse 23b. Peter travels to Caesarea to visit Cornelius. So there he is. He, he, uh, the, the people from Cornelius arrive and take Peter off the 62 kilometres and he arrives at Cornelius' house. And we're going to see here that Peter has two aha moments. We all know what an aha moment is, don't we? Now, whether or not Peter had completely understood the meaning of the vision that he'd had when he sets out for Cornelius' house, it's clear that by the time he arrives, the penny is dropped. He realises that his vision is not just about unclean animals. It's also about unclean people. Verse, 40, verse 28, it says, And he said to them, those in Cornelius' house, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And then verse 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation 
anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Aha moment number one. If God is cleansing non-Jews with the blood of Jesus and giving them the Holy Spirit, then they are clean. They are acceptable to God immediately. Through his death, Jesus has fulfilled the law concerning any believer being unclean, and it no longer applies. Mosaic Law Program Update. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus is clean and acceptable to God. So far, so good. Peter realises that Gentiles, if they have faith in Jesus, are acceptable to God. Tick. But now for the second aha moment. In verse 44, it records... Peter, having explained the gospel to Cornelius' house, it says, as he is still speaking, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household, and they begin speaking in tongues and extolling God. Note what Peter says next in verse 47. I'll read it. Can anyone withhold water for baptising these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Now think very clearly here. Since baptism is the public sign of entry into God's people, what Peter is saying is, if God accepts someone no matter who they are, and if God has made them clean, as a result, the people of God must accept them into the fellowship. The consequences of this are huge. If God accepts them as they are, God's people must accept them as they are. So if these unclean Gentile converts were going to be a part of the Messianic community, then it's not the new converts that have to change. It's the church that has to change. Now, these two principles that the Lord taught Peter that day, that is, any believer is acceptable to God, and any believer, therefore, must be acceptable to the church, these were crucial in opening, opening the door to mass Gentile evangelism. Just how important these two principles are can be seen from the way that Paul fought, from them, fought for them unceasingly. Even as we know, at one stage, he fought with Peter about them. So where does that leave us? For us, these two principles, these two God-given principles, must be guarded with all our might as we engage in cross-cultural evangelism, or indeed any ministry. People can become Christians from whatever state they are currently in. They don't need to become Jews or become anything else on the way to becoming Christians. We can't preach otherwise. We can't believe otherwise. 
we can't imply otherwise, we can't allow our structures in our churches or our prejudices to push us otherwise. Now, this is not meant to minimise the reality that there are pagan practices and thoughts and attitudes that have no place in the Christian church and life. And it doesn't minimise the fact that God wants people to change and become more like Jesus. Let me give you an example. In our Bible school in Congo, a new student turned up. His name was Kalume. He was a brand new Christian from a Muslim background. As we got to know Kalume, we realised that there was nothing about his behaviour or his attitudes or his thoughts or his relationships, including his marriage, that was vaguely Christian. The question of why he was sent to Bible school is another question altogether. However, Kalume had been genuinely converted just a few months ago. He had Jesus in his life. And the point is this, the place for Kalume to be moulded by the gospel and to become Christian in his thoughts and attitudes and life was inside the church and not outside the church. And so the second principle is also still important. The church should never think, how can we change the culture or anything else about these people so that they can fit into our church? Rather, the church must ask, how can we change so that new believers who've been accepted by Jesus can be welcomed and accepted by us into Christian fellowship? And this must be true no matter of the inconvenience, no matter what the pain, no matter what the cost, we must pray for wisdom but be committed to these principles. So let me ask you a question about your church. How is your church going with making sure that you are a fellowship where people from various backgrounds both inquirers and new believers feel welcome. Now, I'm not talking about window dressing here. You'd think that any church in Sydney Diocese or any church in our networks would be great at welcoming outsiders. But I'm not talking about window dressing like changing the name of the church service to a meeting or changing the name of uh, the sermon to a Bible talk. We're talking about much deeper things than that. In Monday afternoon's session about contextualisation, Simon Gillen and I were talking about questioning the assumptions that underpin our ministry practice. What about welcoming outsiders or visitors? You know, in many cultures, it's extremely important to honour visitors. I'll give you another Congo example. Sorry, there'll be, there'll be quite a few of them this week. In the part of Congo where we lived, here is what they do with a visitor in church. At announcement time, which by the way goes on for an hour, 
They all ask, they ask all the visitors to stand. And in turn, each visitor gets a chance to explain who they are, where they've come from, and to bring greetings from where they've come from. Often, then, during some singing time, all the visitors, who by the way don't know each other, are invited out the front and together they all sing a song. You can just imagine that, can't you? And then once church is over, they're invited to stay for lunch. And church members are rostered each week to bring a cooked meal for the visitors. Now imagine a person from a culture where visitors are honoured turning up at an Aussie church. At most Aussie churches, we're terrified of making visitors feel awkward. And usually what we do is we'll chat to them after the service, give them a visitor's card, get them to fill it out, hoping to ring them later in the week. But as this person from another culture leaves the church, their cultural framework might be telling them, wow, they didn't honour me much. They didn't care. Actually, I feel a bit shamed. I didn't feel welcomed at all. I don't think I'll be going back. If we want to reach the nations, we must make sure that our ministry practices will aid us and not work against us. And that takes a lot of thought in prayer. So a last word for the day. We are taking the known gospel to the unknown. Anyone who has faith in Christ is acceptable to God. And that means the church must do everything in its power to accept them as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel and we thank you for this lesson that Peter and the early church had, that it's them that have to change and that anyone who you accept must be accepted by the Christian fellowship. Help us to be wise as we put these principles into practice. Amen.